do you think it means to be included? podcast. I'm Paul, and we've got another episode of The Politics of Divine for you, this one on money. We had a whole conversation between Emily and I on first century Judea and politics of money and how it all works and what it has to do with the not having it that so many of us are faced with right now as jobs are disappearing and unemployment systems aren't working and all that. But something happened with the audio, and we just didn't want to put out a bunch of jumpy, weird stuff for you. So wherever there's a pause in the questions, in the discussion that Joel is putting together, there'll just be a a little space for your own reflection, and then it'll jump back into what stuff was going on on that Saturday night in late February um of last quarter so uh enjoy i got a lot of stuff here and i don't know if we're gonna get through it all (laughs) um so we'll see what we get through and see what what makes sense to talk about and what doesn't make sense to talk about because i putting it together wasn't sure of that so um we'll just see you where we go. Um, but I'm excited about it. Um, we're going to talk about money. Oh, it says it up there. Um, which isn't something, well, I think it's something that is interesting in our culture, in our families, and society. Um, and we're going to talk about the significance of it in our culture and in our society. But it's something that's not oftentimes talked about, interestingly enough. Um, and it can cause a lot of problems. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, But we've been talking about this idea of the politics of the divine, that Jesus presented a way of living, a way of being as a people, um, that if you study it and you look at it, it was was very political in nature. Um, And again, going back to the very beginning when I first kicked off this series, and then we've had multiple staff people um, over the course of the past few weeks um, touch on different aspects of this theme. But politics is something, again, that we don't like to it causes problems when we start talking about it with other people, or it has the tendency to cause problems because we all have different ideas and different beliefs about how things should be and how the world should be structured, our society should be structured. And so it can cause a lot of division or divisiveness. And so some people just choose not to talk about it at all and say, you know what, I'm not gonna be political. Uh, I'm not gonna enter in. Um, 
But I believe, as followers of Jesus, or the way of life that Jesus, for me personally as a follower of Jesus, um, that the way of life that Jesus presented was one in which, if you truly want to follow Jesus, you don't have that luxury of not being political. Um, because Jesus, I believe, was killed because he was politically subversive to the Roman government. Um, and because of that, he was executed. Um, so that's pretty political. Um, and a lot of the things that he said were very political in nature. And one of those things that he talks about a lot, I wouldn't go so far. Some people say it's the thing that he talked about the most. I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, but it's definitely something that he touched on quite a bit is the idea of money. And yet it's not something oftentimes in religious settings is oftentimes brought up and talked about. So that's interesting. Um, Jesus talked a lot about it, but we don't like to talk about it. Um, but tonight we're going to talk about it and see where the conversation takes us. So I'm going to begin tonight not how I usually begin. Um, I usually begin um, not jumping right into what Jesus had to say, but tonight I am. Um, and then we're going to kind of come more present day. Um, but we're going to start with what Jesus had to say. So I'm going to read through three different things that were recorded in what are called the Gospels, these accounts of Jesus' life. Um, these happen to all come out of one particular uh, story about Jesus' life, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but he had tons to say about money. Tons and tons and tons of things. These are just three of the things that he said about money. And then I'm going to ask you a question about these things, so kind of make sure that you're paying attention to what he says. Here they go. So this is Matthew 6, 24. This is kind of the main one that we're going to look at tonight. I'm actually going to come back to this one again. But he says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve both the divine or God and wealth. Or some translations say the word mammon, which is the Hebrew word for money. It's also, it was a, a, a god. Um, the god mammon was the god of wealth or possessions or um, things like that. Um, but probably the best way to translate it is you cannot serve both God or you cannot serve both the divine and wealth. There's something else he said about money a few chapters later. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom? How have we at Front Porch, if you've been coming on Saturday nights for any period of time, can anyone remind me how we kind of talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? What is it? Yeah, Jen. Is it like the way things are supposed to look? Yeah. Good. Um, so my best interpretation of when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, uh, it's this idea of heaven and earth meeting, this idea of the divine and the human coming together, of things beginning to look how they're supposed to look here on this earth. Um, so then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. His disciples then go on, I didn't put this up there, his disciples then go on to ask him, then, then who, can, who can do it? Like, who can enter God's kingdom? And he essentially says um, that with God, all things are possible. 
Um, and then Matthew 21, 12 to 13. Then Jesus went into the temple. So this is the temple in Jerusalem, the most holy site for them. And he threw out all those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you made it a hideout for crooks. So real quick before I ask you questions about some of these things that Jesus was saying, what was, and we've talked some about this, in recent weeks, what was the economic climate of first century Galilee, first century Judea, the place in which Jesus was born, walked around in, and died? So there was taxes, and then there was people that were, um, that were put in place by the Roman government called tax collectors, um, and that's pretty self-explanatory, like what they did. Um, they sat around <laughs> collecting taxes for Rome, um, and for, themse- good, for themselves to make a living, they would take a little bit extra, um, and that was kind of arbitrary. It was up to them how much extra they wanted to take. And so they oftentimes took advantage of the people that they were collecting taxes from, which were just the common, ordinary people. And best guesses are, and this is a statistic that I've thrown out a bunch, um, and it's, they're pretty certain that it was somewhere between 80 to 90% of an ordinary person's income was taxed. Um, so that was taken from you and given to either... The Roman Empire. Why did the Roman Empire need so much money? To build roads. To expand, to build roads, to fight wars, to build really big structures that we go visit today um, and can still see. Um, so they needed a lot of money for their empire. And so that the way, one of the ways, one of the primary ways they got that money was all these ordinary people were out working, earning money, and then 80 to 90% of that was taxed and taken. Anything else we know about the economic setting of Galilee, Judea at that time, first century? I'm not looking for anything specific, just so you know. I'm just asking. And this has been something that's been true until quite recently, but the, it was the case at this point too, but debt was sort of served as this mechanism of enslavement. And so if someone could not pay a tax or could not pay, you know, whatever, your land would then be taken by whatever local, whether it was a municipality or some sort of local governing body or ruler, and you would then be working to pay off the debt or now it was just your land was paying off the debt and you just worked the land that you used to own but now all your labor is then the the commodity of the person who owns your land now Um, and so this sort of shift of wealth from people who may have had a little bit of land that they were farming on or may have had you know some amount of resources the the mechanism of debt was taking 
power away from anyone who may have had any a little bit of agency, um, but were on the lower end of a, a power dichotomy. Great. So I wasn't looking for anything specific, but if I was, that would be the thing I was looking for. Uh, <laughs> and Paul and I did not talk about this. Uh, but land. So land is very important for the people of Israel. Very important. The most important thing, if you read through the Old Testament, it's all about their land. And they had a lot of, well, not a lot, but they had land. Um, and when this whole system was put in place by the Roman Empire and they were taxed like crazy, they would be given loans. Um, and these loans had probably, best estimates, are a 50% interest rate on this loan. What's a good interest rate today on a loan? Anyone know? Three and five. Under five. Under five, yeah, like probably like, like right now I think the interest 13. rate is like... <laughs> I think right now the interest rate is really low and it's like three point, it's like somewhere like 3.4, 3.5, which is really, really low. Um, but yeah, 50% interest rate, that's insane. Um, so obviously these people who took out loans, they could not, this, they were taking out a loan that they would never be able to pay back. They would never be able to pay back the loan. And so what, the, what they took the loan out against was as Paul mentioned, was their land. That was the security. So essentially, when they took the loan out, they were, they were giving their land away because they knew they would never be able to pay back this debt. So eventually, after they, this period of time wore off, when the loan had to be paid, their land was taken away from them. And then what would more often than not happen is they would then go back. And how humiliating is this? They would have to work as laborers, day laborers, on the land which their family had owned for generation after generation after generation, and the land was no longer theirs. It belonged to the, someone else, probably someone belonging to the Roman Empire that they would then have to, um, to work on. Uh, most money that was earned, most crops that were grown were all taken from them, and they would then go to the tax collectors or the Roman Empire. Um, so again, the economic climate state of uh, the, the Jewish people in first century, it was horrific. Um, it, it was not a good time. People would go hungry. People would be, I mean, they talk about famine uh, in, in the scripture in the first century, and it was, um, it was brutal. People would die. Uh, I mean, you see pictures, you see here a famine today that exists within our country, uh, and of babies starving to death because they don't have enough food. That's the kind of thing that was going on in the first century with these people, this, this land and this people in which Jesus was born into. So, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve both the divine and wealth with the person next to you. Again, hopefully just one or two people. I want you to wrestle with this. What do you think Jesus is saying here? Is there something wrong with money? Why did Jesus seem to talk about it so frequently? One of those questions. Or, again, like I like to say, if there was something else in one of these verses, particularly this one, that caught your interest or idea that popped into your head, again, feel free to talk about that. Don't feel like you have to exactly answer these questions. But those are some questions to kind of get you going. What do you think Jesus is saying here? Is there something wrong with money? Why did Jesus seem to talk about it so frequently? Uh, two minutes with the person next to you and go.
one of, if not the prevailing dominant system or structure or institution in Jesus' time, I would say, was the economy, was the economy of Rome. It ruled everything. It, in a sense, was God. Um, it determined how they functioned, which then how the Roman elite functioned, which then controlled how everyone else functioned as well. Um, and there was an extreme gap between those who had extreme wealth and those who didn't. And there really wasn't like what we have today, although I think a lot of economists would argue that it's shrinking. Um, there really wasn't this middle class um, thing that we have today. It was extreme wealth and extreme poverty. Um, and you is the have nots and the haves and you either you had it or you didn't. Um, and it wasn't just the Romans for whom wealth was such an obsession. Uh, it had seeped its way into Jewish life, into the religious setting. Um, as you saw in, in this, Jesus goes into a temple and there's some money exchanging going on. Um, money had seeped its way into their way of life as well. Um, and Jesus was constantly telling parables to the religious leaders of his day that had to do with money and the economy. Um, he talked about forgiving people their debts. He talked about, because um, there was this thing called the year of Jubilee, um, which every so often they were supposed to forgive debts. And the, the Jewish people had stopped practicing the year of Jubilee. Um, and so Jesus was talking about that with the religious leaders. And the reason they had stopped, why, why would you stop practicing the year of Jubilee, which was where uh, a year comes around where you forgive everyone their debts? Why would you stop practicing that? What was that? A lot of people owe you money, and you want the money, right? So why would you forgive all the debts? Um, I mean, why would you do that? I think we even in today's day and age would be like, why would you ever have a year of jubilee where everyone is forgiven their debts? Like, why would, why would you do that? It doesn't make sense to most of us, right? Um, he taught about using money to help the poor and needy. Specifically, as we've talked about before, the orphan, the widow, and the refugee, which I've stated is, was kind of the standard for the people of Israel. If that was the, the barometer of how the people of Israel were doing, it, by their own measure, if the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant um, or refugee were being taken care of, they were doing well. If they were not being taken care of, there was something wrong at the, the heart and soul of who they were as a people. And so Jesus is regularly talking about those three groups of people. Um, we're going to look at money for a moment and the history of it, which I think is interesting and fun. Um, what is it? How does it work? How did we get to where we are today with money? This is a great book that I've referenced before. I know some of you in the room have read. It's a book by Yuval Noah Harari. Um, called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, which I highly encourage. I'm not saying that I, with any book that I read, I don't adhere to everything that this book says. This book isn't, uh, I guess using a metaphor, this book isn't the Bible to me. Um, but this book presents a really cool, interesting ideas about the history of us um, as people. Um, and there's a few sections in here which talk about money, which most of the stuff that I'm about to say comes out of there. Um, this is one quote, which I want to begin with, where, where uh, he's talking about money. He says this, Money was created many times in many places. Its development required no technological breakthroughs. It was a purely mental revolution. 
It involved the creation of a new intersubjective reality that exists solely in people's shared imagination. Money is not coins and banknotes. Money is anything that people are willing to use in order to represent systematically the value of other things for the purpose of exchanging goods and services. He goes on to give an example of this in the prison system today where essentially a lot – even – not always, but um, no, he doesn't use the prison system today, although I know that in some prison systems this still works. Um, But he uses the example of – Nazi Germany in the concentration camps and what became the form of money in those concentration camps was cigarettes they were money and so everything that you needed a prisoner needed in uh, who was in one of those concentration camps that they needed to get if they needed a I, I forget the exact things that he uses but they all had a value ascribed to them and that value was a certain number of cigarettes so some items would be two cigarettes some items would be there was one item i forget what it was but it was like 400 cigarettes um the cigarettes became the money um just as an example so the money is not these coins and banknotes that's this more of this idea that people agree to um so what did we do before what do you think people did before money what how did we how did we get things that we needed because that's essentially what we do with money today. If we need something, we pay a certain amount of money. So what did we do before money? We traded. So how did that work? What does that look like? Someone give me an example. Great. So you have a friend. So Emily up here has potatoes. And Teresa, and Teresa, has, and Teresa has a chicken. Uh, Teresa wants the potatoes, and she goes, what? So badly. So badly. She wants the potatoes very badly. And so she goes to Emily, and, and she says, I have a chicken that I can give you. And thank goodness, Emily wants the chicken. I hope. Um, and so then they, they, they figure out a, a trade. Um, and I don't know how many potatoes Emily's willing to give for the chicken, but they come up with a number and they make this trade. Now here's where it got really interesting. So let's say, let's say someone else comes to Emily and wants potatoes. And they don't have, let's use a different example. <clears throat> okay, Paul's got a shirt on right here. I want Paul's shirt. Or I want the shirt. Paul makes shirts, maybe. But he's got a nice shirt. And said, Paul, I'd love to have that shirt. Uh, I got a pair of shoes I'll give you for my shirt. And Paul says, sure. So we make this trade. Now, what happens when someone comes along and wants a different shirt of Paul's, but it's not as nice a shirt as this one, but it's still a shirt. Um, it's a nice shirt. It's, it's maybe, because that, that looks like a very nice shirt. So I give you a really nice pair of shoes and we make a deal. Mm. But let's say someone comes along and wants Paul. He's just wearing, a, I'm trying to think of a different shirt you wear a lot. Can't think of it. But like a t-shirt. And someone else comes along and wants that. What does that person then give Paul for that t-shirt? Something of less value. Like sandals. Maybe sandals. Perhaps a haircut. But do you see where you get, you begin to have problems with this system? This system gets very confusing very quickly, and humans had to have 
a lot of information stored in their head for exchange rates because there was thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and you've all know Harari makes this point here. There was thousands upon thousands upon thousands of different exchange rates for any object that was traded because there was no clear system of exact trade. And so they had to have all these different ideas of how they would then make a trade. Um, so that's one reason they changed. The other thing is, what if I went to Paul and Paul didn't want my shoes, but I really wanted Paul's shirt. What am I going to do? And so it gets very messy very quickly. Either I'm out of luck or I got to find someone who has something else, make another deal with them. So when money comes along and they have now there's this common thing. I'm not sure I understand. Stop. <laughs> now there's this common thing that everybody wants. Everybody wants the money. And so now it becomes much more, and there's a common exchange rate now. Everyone knows that, that they can just set their price for a particular item, and they give that amount of money. It's not as confusing as giving a different item. Um, money was also easier to store, easier to take with you places. Some of these other things were much harder to store and take with you places. Um, so money becomes this universal medium of exchange that enables people to convert almost anything into almost anything else. It became the thing that people, and so therefore it became the thing that people began to put their absolute trust in, more so than anything else. Here's what Harari eventually gets to. Money is based on two universal principles. Universal convertibility, anything can be converted into anything else. And universal trust, using money, any two people can cooperate on any project. I'm going to leave this up here, and I want you to turn to the person next to you, and here are the questions, that I, and I'll put this back up there, but here are the questions. What do you think are protect, potential problems with this? What might this lead to? What does it ignore? What do you think are potential problems with this? What might this lead to? And what does it ignore? can convert anything, and then this gets a little bit to the point Emily was making, and when trust is dependent upon money, there's things like culture, I think, the culture of a people, things like local traditions that people have, relationships that people have, interpersonal relationships, um, whether those are with family members or friends or the community you live in, values, they all can become, have, have the tendency, they don't have to, but they can have the tendency and the ease with which to be replaced by supply and demand. And so you begin seeing things like, um, uh, Emily mentioned prostitution, um, when families are so hungry that they then sell, have to sell their own children into slavery. Uh, and so all of a sudden a human being uh, begins to have uh, a value in order to be able to purchase food. Um, throughout history, um, there was a period of time where you could buy forgiveness from the church. 
So all of a sudden, forgiveness from God had a monetary value. And there was a certain value placed upon that, that people could pay so that they would then be forgiven by God. Um, the selling of loyalty to the highest bidder. And so no, these things that never had monetary value before, all of a sudden now within this system of money begin to have a monetary value. And so loyalty, that was never something that would have a value, but now you can buy loyalty. And so loyalty goes to the highest bidder. Well, I'll be loyal to whoever will pay me the most to be loyal to them. Um, and so take front porch as an example. What, if you have, not me, but you come to front porch on a somewhat regular basis, what would you say front porch is built upon? Like what, what is, what makes front porch work? What is it built upon? What, what was that? Community. Say, keep going with that. It's built upon community. What, what goes into that? There's a, in some sense, I don't know if this is the right word for that, but there is a selflessness. There's a, a willingness of people to come in and they're not being paid and a willingness to selflessly serve their peers. Yeah, so there's this unspoken thing. I mean, most, not all people, but most people I talk to come in here and they, there's, you know, you expect to come in here and be treated kindly. Um, and so there's a, there's a morality in a sense, which is underlying, I think, everything, and not that everyone has to agree to the same morality, but there's definitely a morality that exists within this space um, that helps this place be the welcoming, kind, friendly, loving place that it is. And so there's all these different words you could use. Um, and that's what communities, that's what families have been based upon for a very long period of time um, are things like that. Honor, loyalty, morality, love, and with money, all of a sudden, that began to change. And it has continued to affect communities um, and families throughout history. Um, what would you say is the most dominant system within our society today, within American culture? The most dominant system. That, I, that's the argument. I don't know if you heard what Emily said. She said capitalism. I think capitalism drives, drives our country in almost every decision that's made. Not every decision, but a lot of them. It comes down to capitalism. I'm going to talk about capitalism for a moment, and I want to be very clear. I think there's some beautiful, beautiful things about capitalism, and I think our country has succeeded. And I'm not saying that capitalism is wrong, and I'm not saying our country will change from being capitalistic. Um, but just because I say all of that doesn't mean that we as a people, particularly people who are trying to figure out a different way of being, a different way of living that is better than what we have experienced, shouldn't be able to look back and critique certain systems. Um, and so we're going to do that for a moment. Um, the idea used to be that there was only so much wealth to go around. So I'm going to give you a, a basic understanding of capitalism for those of you who don't completely understand it. I don't completely understand it. Um, but the basic idea was that there used to be only so much wealth to go around. The idea that Harari talks about when he talks about capitalism is that there's a, imagine a pie and there's only so much of the pie to go around. And so that um, 
Someone might get wealthier, but the only way that someone else would get wealthier would be to what? In terms of the pie? To take, yeah, someone else's portion of the pie would then get smaller. But with the scientific revolution, this idea of progress came along. And with the idea of progress, uh, this idea came about that we are constantly getting better and things are growing and we're going to make more and more money. Um, and so this idea of credit came about, um, and all of a sudden the trust was placed in the future that there would be more and more and more money. So there's this Scottish economist by the name of Adam Smith, and he published something called The Wealth of Nations in 1776. And he said the basic idea behind capitalism is that, is that if an employer has more profits then he or she needs to maintain his, his or her own family. If an employer has more profits than he or she needs to maintain his or her own family, he or she will do what with those profits? What was that? Yeah. Would not, what some of you were talking about, would not take them and stockpile them or bury them somewhere or hide them in a vault somewhere to be locked away and just keep getting more and more. That you would then take that capital, that money, those goods, those resources, and you would then reinvest it into the space in which you live. Use those profits to create more jobs, to open more factories, to hire more employees. Um, the increase in profits of private entrepreneurs is the basis for the increase in collective wealth and prosperity. So his argument was essentially that greed was good, that it was good to be greedy, that it was good to want more and more wealth. Why? Why was it so good? Oh. Yeah, you would use wealth. Because if more and more people got more and more wealth, they only needed so much wealth. So if I was this incredibly wealthy person, but my family would only need so much of that wealth. So I would take all of the remaining part of that wealth and I would open more front porches with all that extra money that I have. And I would hire more people to work at all of those other front porches instead of taking all that money and putting it in the bank and just holding on to it and saving it for some imaginary day. So, and this question I'm going to throw out to the group as well. What are the problems with that idea? Where do we run into problems with that? That's capitalism in a nutshell. I know it's a very basic understanding of capitalism, but that's the basic understanding of capitalism. What are the problems with it? And I, real quick before, I know it's hard to, in my mind, it's hard to critique a system that we, we, we've known no other thing. That's all we've known. Is capitalism. We were born into it. We eat, breathe, sleep capitalism. So I know it's hard, but like I said earlier, I think it's sometimes important to at least uh, and good to critique systems that are like that. It doesn't take into account that there's limited resources. And that's so true about capitalism because the capitalistic belief is that there's unlimited resources out there. Um, when we know that there's not, there's only so much water. There's only so many trees. 
There, I mean, and you can go down the list, but the, the resources are not, and I think one of the things I wrote down that it, it doesn't take into account is it doesn't take into account greedy business owners who just want more and more money. I mean, capitalism, the idea of capitalism doesn't take that into account. Um, and so you have business owners who increase profits by paying employees less, but demanding more hours of them. Um, you have things like monopolies. You have things like Ponzi schemes. You have things, uh, well, that's a pretty harsh one, but one that is deep within the history of our country is slavery. That came out of the capitalistic model. Slavery did. Um, free market capitalism doesn't ensure that things will be done in a fair way. And so that's just up to trust. We trust, we hope that people will do that certain good thing with their money, but it doesn't guarantee that people will do things in a fair way. It kind of puts this trust and hope in this, this, this thing called capitalism. Um, real quick, we're going to look at uh, the U.S. today, and then I'm going to kind of leave you with a question. Um, Here's a chart for you to look at. This came from the Federal Reserve, this chart. Um, it's our U.S. government. Um, well, actually, before I put it up, I know the chart's up there, but I'm going to take it away. I'll give it back to you in just a second. In the U.S. today, the 400 richest people, this is just in the U.S., the 400 richest people own more wealth than the entire bottom 64% of the population, which is 204 million people. So you hear that? The 400 richest people have more wealth than the entire bottom 64% of the population. Um, and we have over 40 million Americans living below the poverty line within our country. Um, the Federal Reserve recently issued an economic report, which was very interesting, partly because, and I know some of what I'm saying sounds like I'm trying to make a political argument. I'm not. Um, that was not the intent of tonight. I'm not trying to say that, uh, yeah, that's not what this is. I'm not arguing, like Jack, I just, heard, I just heard Jack say socialism. That's not what I'm up here arguing for. So please don't hear me on that. Um, I don't want tonight to be some sort of divisive thing. But I do think this is a system that we should critique and look at, no matter where you fall. Um, so here's this chart again. Uh, today in the U.S., uh, no, I said that. The Federal Reserve uh, recently issued this, an economic report, which is very interesting, partly because the Federal Reserve has recently, I don't know if you've been following the news, but the Federal Reserve has recently been very eager to share about a couple of things. One, the, um, the success of the economy um, and the su success we're currently experiencing. And there's two main things that they list when it comes to the success of the economy. Does anyone know what those two main things that the Federal Reserve has been talking about? GDP. Yeah, so, so our economic expansion, that we are expanding, um, and historically low job rate. What the problem, and I'm not arguing against those things, but Rome would have argued the exact same thing. The Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. They would have argued the exact same thing. They would have argued that, wow, we are having massive expansion growth right now, and we are creating jobs. But what was the problem? The, the, 
the top percent was being incredibly wealthy while the bottom percent was being taxed 80 to 90 percent of their wealth and it was not a very good situation um so i think that these things when we name them they mask some of the things that are really going on again this came from the federal reserve this wasn't a political politically driven um paper that was presented um so this report shows, among other things, that the poorest 50% of Americans are literally getting crushed by the weight of rising inequalities. So I don't, I'm not going to dissect this for you. But here's the top 1%. Here's the top 10%. The green and the purple. Here's the next 40%. So this is the top 50%. And then the bottom 50%. All the way down here. Do you notice? Is there anything that you observe about this debt? I don't know if there's anything that you guys see up there that's interesting to you. The top 1% is taking a bigger share of the percent of aggregate over time. Yeah. Good. A couple things, statistics that I'm just going to read from this report. In 2018, the richest 10% held 70% of total household wealth, up from 60% in 1989. Uh, the share funneled to the top 1% jumped to 32%. I know there's a lot of numbers, and I'm not a numbers guy, so when I hear numbers, I'm like, but um, I'm giving you some numbers for those of you who are numbers people. Uh, the share funneled to the top 1% jumped to 32% last year from 23% in 1989. Um, the increase in the wealth share of the top 10% came at the expense of the households in the 50th to 90, 90th percentiles of wealth distribution. The, that's what the paper said that was released by the Federal Reserve. Um, and then the bottom, last thing, the bottom 50% saw essentially zero net gains in wealth over 30 years, driving their already meager share of total wealth down to just 1% from 4%. Um, so it's increasingly hard for the bottom 50% um, within the system in which our country has created. Um, what do you think have been some of the costs to our country or to our world in terms of capitalism? By businesses being rewarded for producing the best product possible um, and demanded by the market at the lowest possible price. What are some of the, and you, some of them you've already named, but what do you think are some of the things that have been affected? Besides just people not having a lot of money, what else has been affected? Yeah. Local businesses. Yeah, good. So local businesses. That's huge here in San Luis Obispo, if you didn't know. Um, there's definitely a um, different mindset. So you have local businesses, and then you have these big corporations that kind of come in and so a recent example one that has affected me in some ways um, is when REI came into town I love REI I grew up on REI um, REI is from Seattle that's where I grew up um, that's where I like to shop for my outdoor goods but we have a local company here in San Luis Obispo that was pretty much the only outdoor company what's its name Mountain. the Mountain Air which now, I haven't talked, I, Josh, who owns the Mountain Air, I haven't talked to him, but I'm guessing that they've been affected by that um, and will continue to be affected by that because REI is pretty popular right now here in San Luis Obispo. I'm going to uh, finish here so we can wrap up. Um, Richard Rohr says this, this quote from him. He's someone that we as a staff like to read. He's a Franciscan friar, and he says a lot of good things about 
life and God and some other things. Um, but he said this. He says, there, uh, there has been a permanent state of class warfare of the rich against the poor throughout history. But for some strange reason, it is only called class warfare when it is the poor against the rich. I thought that was a powerful quote. Production, consumption, it's become our goal, I think, within the country in which we live. And it's all about protecting those at the top and protecting the power structure that exists because of that. Um, I think in our society today, we tend to abhor and criticize things, uh, anything that involves welfare for the poor. Um, I often hear that criticized within our country, but when corporations and banks and military systems and quote-unquote national emergencies are in need of funding or bailouts, uh, we don't even blink. We are so ready to, our country is so ready to throw money at those things. But when we're talking about the poor and the people who don't have anything and giving money and services to them, all of a sudden, Everyone has a million different beliefs about it. An example, um, anyone guess how much money our country spent on defense last year? And I'm not saying we shouldn't spend on defense, so don't hear that. But can anyone guess how much money we spent as a country on defense last year? Three trillion? trillion. No, it's not in the trillions, it's in the billions. Any guesses, though, how much? $668 billion is the estimate of how much we as a country will spend on defense this year. Here's up against this. How much do you think collectively we will spend this year on education, housing, infrastructure, and other basic services? 190 billion. Pretty crazy. Um, Yuval Noah Harari said this in his book as well. Why don't we say thank you for your service to teachers We have some teachers in the room. Ellie, my mom, Christy. Um, Why don't we... Why don't we say thank you for your service to teachers? Also, the military gives us needed security, but teachers give us the health and culture that allow us to flourish inside that security. Security is not an end in itself. Human flourishing is. And I believe that's what Jesus talked about when he talked about the kingdom of God. He wanted humans to flourish. So last quote, and then the final question. This is a quote by Paul Hawken in The Ecology of Commerce, the de- A Declaration of Sustainability. What a title. Um, he says, the problem with the United States is that it usually hits exactly what it's aiming at. And for decades now, we have aimed for money and possessions. And we got it. It was not evenly distributed and now highly and is now highly concentrated, posing as great a threat to democracy as any foreign power ever did. But that is what this country made, money. And in the process, we completely forgot that success and failure, when measured by currency alone, are imposters. And that our lives, the transience of which often becomes evident all too late, can have little meaning unless we feel in our passing that we were able to serve the nature and humanity that gave us our breath and soul. Here's the question that I want you to leave here with tonight. So what do we do? What do we do? 
again, I just gave you a bunch of information and thoughts and ideas. I wasn't trying to kind of, like I always say, to collectively present you with a nice little package with a bow on top to go away from here. The goal of tonight is hopefully just to get you thinking about money and the role that it plays in our lives, the economy, capitalism, these things that um, so often we don't even think of. Again, especially capitalism because we know nothing else. We don't know any other system within the lives that we have lived. Um, and then questions of how does it get better and how do we make a difference? Because I believe we can make a difference and I believe it can get better. Uh, Jim Wallace, who's an American theologian, writer, teacher, political activist, said, while it's good to protest, having an alternative is better. While it is good to protest, having an alternative is better. The best criticism of something bad is to do what? It's to practice something better. So, um, I think that's all I got for tonight. I think that serving the divine means to constantly be looking, listening, jumping into places where we are helping to make this world look more like it should. Uh, I know that for some of you, though, it might have felt like a political statement. Um, but money is something that is so woven into the fabric of our everyday lives. Um, and I think so often we don't even think twice about how it affects us and how it affects every single decision that we make.